Our second reading is from the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 1. And it's the story before Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing upward toward heaven, and suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up? Then this Jesus, who had been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is nearby, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. And all these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer to gather together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is the word of the Lord for you today. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. I attended a conference years ago early in my ministry, and how you know it's a good illustration in the sermon is 29 years later you remember to tell it in your own sermon. It was Jim Lowry, then pastor of Idlewide Presbyterian Church in Memphis, and he shared that every Saturday evening in his youth, just before he left the house to pick up his date, his father would look him squarely in the eye and say, Son, remember who you are. Jim grew up in the heart of the South at a time when who you were still meant something. It didn't have much to do with money or education or beauty. It had to do with character. What you did, how you behaved, reflected on yourself, reflected on your family name. And Jim had a responsibility to bear to the Lowry name with honor, which wasn't a burden to him, but rather a reminder of his best self, a legacy, a commitment. Child, remember who you are. The voice of a parent said to a soldier child before walking out of the house and heading off to boot camp or a different country or into battle. The voice of your teacher, your coach, your leader, 
your pastor in a Sunday morning sermon. Parents, mentors can fill the gap when we forget who we are, but better yet, the voice of Jesus, who today says to each and every one of you, remember who you are. But what is our best self? How do we know who we are at the core? We hear these words from another voice today, Amos, a short little book in the Old Testament that packs a punch because I'll tell you before I talk about it, these people are in trouble, God is mad at them, we don't want to be them, so we have a lot to learn today. I like to welcome Amos into your midst by saying this, welcome to another biblical episode of Days of Our Lives with the prophet Amos. Nobody back in the day, around 760 B.C., a long time ago, would have ever selected Amos to be a prophet. Not even him. Why? He just didn't have the resume. I mean, no one pointed out the fact more than he did when he said, shall I paraphrase, Hey everybody, no one in my family tree was ever a prophet. I'm a shepherd. I'm living with a bunch of guys who are shepherds like me, and I'm from this small town named Tekoa. You know, it's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Bet you never even heard of it. I'm a simple man. I grow sycamore figs in my off hours. When I was in college in the 80s, I know, right? There was a TV miniseries drama called The North and the South, and it aired on television. Okay, raise your hand if you remember when that actually came on the air. Yes. Well, long before that time in American history, God called Amos to put down the shepherd's staff and his figs and pick up the life of being a prophet in the midst of the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom, a climate of unrest. And God asked Amos, you know, just to leave his home in the southern kingdom and everything he knows and to risk life and limb to deliver a prophecy against the northern kingdom, the entire kingdom, one prophet. And I guess, too, he had to figure out that when he would get there, they probably wouldn't like hearing this prophecy. I mean, at the time, the people of Israel, God's people, were pretty prideful, more about enjoying their material possessions, doing whatever they felt like doing. And yes, these are God's people, the ones we heard about, released from Egypt, went through the wilderness, all that God had done for them, and right now they weren't really into God at all, really. They didn't have love for their neighbor. They took advantage of people for profit. They refused to help people in need. They were kind of looking out for number one. They were observing religious rituals, kind of going through the motions in hopes of appeasing God. But of course God saw through it. So God sends Amos, the guy who was convinced he was not a prophet. And along the way, God made him a prophet. And he gave him 
two burning messages to share, and he had to share it. The first, a rebuke. God was holding them accountable. It took Amos eight and a half chapters of his nine-chapter book to fulfill this first prophecy of rebuking. God's beloved people of Israel, they forgot who they were, God's children. They forgot whose they were, God's. They found a sense of belonging back in the day. They had experienced the love being in the family of God. And here was Amos reminding them. And that is the second burning message that he had from God for them. In the last five verses of the entire book, words of restoration, of repair in their relationship from such a grace-filled place of God. The verses talk all about what God is going to do to make it right between them. And Amos, the shepherd God turned prophet, had this burning call from God to intercede for the oppressed, to give voice to the voiceless in the world. The call of the Christian church today. When we forget who we are, we have only to look to Jesus to remind us that we are strengthened by the truth of who we are, which nothing can ever take away from us. You are God's beloved child. That's who you are. Jesus, he had the power like the poem read to take our wounded hearts beating their own keys and tune them to the beauty of God's mercy. God can gather the scattered fragments of our lives, the pieces of our persons, the Christian we yearn to be and mold us into the image of his son Jesus. You know, we have this almighty and powerful God who by the power of the Holy Spirit can restore our fractured lives, who like the people of Israel can repair what is broken in us, who can restore in us what we think we've lost, who can rebuild not just how it used to be, but like the lessons we have learned from COVID make us better for having lived through hardship. Jesus is the only one who can fill in the gap in your life. And Jesus can do that in so many ways. The poem said, where we fail, God redeems. What we lose, Jesus saves. Revival is coming. Can you feel it? In light of Amos' prophecy, now we get why the disciples are gathered around Jesus, pumping him for inside information. Because he's got this huge loose end, according to them. And so now it makes sense, after hearing about the people of Israel from Amos, that the one question the disciples are going to ask Jesus before he literally ascends into heaven, and it's kind of a question, but it's kind of a, like, should you really... You should really tie that up before you head out. Lord, come on, can you tell us now that you have risen and everything, are you going to finally restore the kingdom of Israel? You know, the patriarchs, they couldn't do it. The kings, the people insisted.
yet they couldn't do it either. They all could not restore Israel, not even the prophets. It was Jesus who brought restoration, but not only to Israel. You see, the disciples were thinking, were thinking too small. And he tells them in just a minute, he says, I have come for all the people. All the people that the disciples don't yet grasp in that minute. But they will. So essentially, Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know the times and dates about God. God is the ultimate authority. But here's what's going to happen. So listen up, disciples. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And Jesus now has become the prophet to the disciples. Pentecost is coming. A full-on revival where 3,000 will come to know Jesus and believe in him and follow him. And how is Jesus going to do it? Through those 11 disciples. Yes, the disciples we have come to love, who we can relate to in their worst moments and their best moments. Jesus looks at them, 11 people, and he believes into them as he always has. He loves them. And much to their shock, like Amos, he's called them for a purpose. He's entrusting his entire ministry into their hands when he says, you, you are my disciples. Go, be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And then he's gone. It's almost like mic drop, gone. He ascends. Before their very eyes, a cloud, it says, blocks them from seeing him. And here they are standing around. You can just imagine. They're kind of looking up to heaven, and Jesus is gone, and they're still kind of standing there. They can't get over what he said, and they're kind of in shock, and they're just not moving. They're just standing, looking up. And then it says, two, come in white robes and say, men of Galilee, almost like, hey, wake up. Why do you stand here looking to the sky? Go. You heard him. Get to Jerusalem. And before you head out, remember who you are. You're Jesus' disciples. The message for us today is the same. And then what do they do when they get there? They go back to the Mount of Olives. They stay at the place where they had stayed with Jesus. And isn't it interesting? They do the roll call. And we get to hear the names of those 11 disciples. And how important is naming in the life of the Christian church? We name our children in baptism. The first question the parents are asked is, what name do you give your child? Just last Sunday, we did a roll call of all of our church veterans, and we named every name. So important. Because now... Our veterans reside in the kingdom of God, bigger than the north, bigger than the south. Once names are said, we realize that we have spots to fill, that our names have been called. We have been called by Jesus just like he 
recruited his disciples, when he walked up to them in their ordinary lives and he made it extraordinary with one question. Follow me? When they do the roll call in that room, they realize there's one spot that they have to fill. I don't know if you noticed, but Judas's role was to be the overseer. And there's two men that are brought forward by the disciples, and it says that they go into prayer and they ask for discernment. And when they say the amen, it is Matthias that is chosen. And I love this last verse. Then they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. They stayed in prayer, and we hear the voice of the poet call. Call out to the nations, all who are broken and weary, and let their hearts be satisfied. A decade and a half before Memorial Day became a federal holiday in 1971, Billy Graham was in Boston to deliver a memorial address to the veterans of foreign wars in the year was 1955. At that time, Billy was known, like Amos, as a preacher with a burning message for the people. He had just finished visiting many United States military installments in Europe, and I would like to read this excerpt from his timeless message, which still rings true this Memorial Day weekend as we remember with gratitude the sacrifices of so many for our nation. Billy preached. Thousands of you gathered here could tell dramatic stories of heroism, which you yourself have seen acted out by your buddies on the grim stage of war's theater. They have left this realm of time and space. They have outstripped us in life's races. But the sacred memory of their selflessness and the freedom they died to obtain will live forever. Some months ago, when President Eisenhower was touring the battlefield at Valley Forge and was being shown from one historic spot to another, he made this statement at the conclusion of the tour. This is where they got it for us. What did he mean? He meant that those men and thousands of others and all the wars that America has fought purchased with their lives the freedom we enjoy today in the land of the free and the home of the brave. That terse statement from the lips of our president has rung in my ears for many months. As we think of the selfless and the heroism we are reminded of the words of Jesus Christ who said, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. For the freedoms we enjoy, the freedoms we take so much for granted, the freedoms we so often trifle with were bought not by the gold of millionaires, nor altogether by the geniuses of our scientists, nor the sacrifices of the people at home, but primarily by the blood, sweat, and agony of those whose names on this day we honor, those who died that we might live. Sometimes it is far more difficult to live than it is to die. They have handed us a torch, and we 
responsibility to see that they have not died in vain. And even though the sacrifices of our dead have been great, yet the greatest sacrifice of all time was made by a man on a cross who died not only physically, but spiritually, that we might live. And we have neglected him for far too long in this country. I challenge the world at this hour to accept his program of heart regeneration that can transform society in which we live and we can know the meaning of genuine peace in our time. Yes, the bells of liberty ring in America today because those we honor today got through for us. The sacred memory of their sacrifice will always live in our hearts for we have a sacred and holy trust and we cannot fail them. My mind goes back 2,000 years ago to another battle which was fought on a hill called Calvary. It was a battle of one young man against all the forces of evil and it seemed like a futile, hopeless struggle as Jesus Christ took on Satan's task for a single handed the jeers of the rabble, the spittle of the soldiers, and the sneering of the people were incidental compared to the inner struggle which was taking place in his soul. But I watched him in fancy, as one hand is stretched out toward God and another out toward rebellious humanity. And he makes the connection and says, it is finished. He got through for us. If we are to be strong spiritually, it will be through him. Thousands today are reminded afresh that we can live for him. They are learning to say with confidence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we best keep faith with those who have gone before by keeping faith with ourselves, with our highest ideals, and with God. Friends, partners in ministry, I have good, good news. You are loved. You are cherished. You are a child of God. You are a brother or sister to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is not only in you, it is around you and it works through you. You have been given, has Billy Graham preached, a heart regeneration. And now let us live like it. Let us stand in the gap, just as Jesus does, and remember always who we are. You see, the revival of the relevance of the Christian church isn't coming. It's here. It's now. And it starts with you and me. Can 